Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 46, the book of Acts, chapters 20 and 21. I hope that uh, Acts is proving to be a little bit surprising to you in uh, what's in there. Uh, We are about to enter our 46th week in Acts, and uh, we got a long way to go. We have a little more to cover to complete Acts chapter 20, and then we're going to move immediately into chapter 21. Well, Paul is in Miletus, which is a province of Asia. And this is just a few miles south of Ephesus. He doesn't think that he has the time to travel to Ephesus to meet with the leadership there because he's in a big hurry to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Shavuot. Now, this pressure to get to Jerusalem is born from the fact that it is a biblical commandment that all Israelites are to make a pilgrimage to the temple for the Feast of Shavuot and two other feasts as well. Now, pay attention to how much time and effort it takes for him to get to Jerusalem for this feast because this is what every diaspora Jew faced and it's why relatively few made those required pilgrimages. So for whatever reasons or circumstances, Paul had elected not to make the trip for the Feast of Matzah, which means he broke the law. Paul is such a well-known figure by now that no doubt the leadership of the way were concerned that he had not come to Jerusalem for Passover. I mean, all it could do is add suspicions and rumors that he might be moving away from devotion to Halakha, Jewish law. So Shaul sent a message to Ephesus asking that the leaders of that congregation of believers there come to him, which they did. Well, Shaul feels certain something bad is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. It is an intuition that he has that has been confirmed by various prophets in believing congregations who have been warning him of trouble. And he feels certain that whether due to this coming trouble or something else that he will never again return to Ephesus nor the other believing congregations that he set up in Asia and Macedonia, Greece, Phrygia, So he gives an impassioned speech to the leadership of Ephesus to remember him as a dedicated, faithful follower of Yeshua who put himself at great risk to bring the truth to them. He also warns them that wolves will come to attack the flock of believers and attempt to pull them away into spiritual darkness. Thus, as leaders, they must be on guard for this possibility. They must be aware that these wolves may even rise up from among the believers. So, let's pick up Acts chapter 20 at verse 
32. Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 32. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's right at the bottom of the page, of page uh, 1389. 1389. <clears throat> and now I entrust you to the care of the Lord and to the message of His love and kindness, for it can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who have been set apart for God. I have not wanted for myself anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have provided not only for my own needs, but for the needs of my co-workers as well. In everything I have given you an example of how, by working hard like this, you must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Yeshua himself, there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. And when he finished speaking, Shaul kneeled down with them all and prayed, and they were all in tears, as they threw their arms around his neck and kissed him farewell. And what saddened them the most was his remark that they would never see him again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. As I read and, and pondered verse 32 it occurred to me that, that Paul as a, as a teacher of God's word and an evangelist of Yeshua's gospel was quite worried about what would happen when he was no longer present to answer questions to guide, to encourage now we've already seen as with Apollos that believing evangelist from Alexandria, Egypt that God's message can be easily, sometimes unintentionally, distorted. Or vital pieces of information can be left out. Pagan ideas can be blended with biblical truth. And new believers especially can be susceptible to deception. Now Paul's answer to this problem is twofold. First, was to plead with the leaders to look to the Lord to temper everything they thought, they learned, they taught, they did with love and with kindness. But second is something that Paul will do that isn't mentioned here. It is that Paul will keep his ear to the ground and using messengers and other means he'll keep track from afar of what is going on with these diaspora Congregations, and he will communicate with them by means of letters. It's his letters to these congregations that he will use to exhort them to remain steadfast in the faith he's taught to them, and he will correct them with proper doctrine when they go off the reservation. Although I'm positive that he never envisioned it, these letters to the congregations will eventually form a substantial part of a Christian New Testament that would be added to the Bible about 150 years after his martyrdom. And of course, we are fortunate to have this same legacy of Paul's teachings to show us the way in our own time just as it did for the Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, and the other believing congregations of Paul's day. Well, verse 30, 30, 33 pardon me, makes an emphatic point that needs to be revived in modern Christianity. Shaul says, 
He used his own hands to support himself and also to help others. He didn't take gold, silver, or clothing in payment for his teaching and his preaching. In other words, he used his craft as a tent maker as his means of support. He didn't seek money from the congregations for his living. So Shaul being an evangelist was not his occupation. It was his passion. His occupation as a tent maker financed his passion. Now Paul's message to us then is this. Pastors and rabbis should work to support themselves wherever that's practical so as not to burden the congregation. But we also need to take Paul's example in light of his times versus ours. Much more is expected of today's ministers such that even in a modest-sized congregation being a pastor is usually a full-time job in itself. That is not something that Paul nor these rabbis of his era faced. Our society is much more structured. More congregational activities are the norm. Facilities and services are more elaborate. Members look to the ministers for a more personal touch. Ministers deserve to make a decent living so that they can support their families. That said, I'm disappointed to see some Christian leaders that view themselves as equivalent to business owners, CEOs, senior executives, and they expect to be paid on a level equivalent to what the same sort of position might pay in the business world. Every case is different, of course. But the spirit of Paul's example is crystal clear. No more ought to be taken from the congregational treasury than is needed for the reasonable support of ministry and staff. Making these positions into high-paying careers that compete with private industry for talent is one of a number of factors that has shrunk the necessary gap between believing institutions and the world. But it has also attracted people into ministry leadership and service who are less dedicated in sacrificially serving God with their gifts and talents and more interested in obtaining a stable, good-paying job with nice working conditions. It's noteworthy that here Paul quotes Christ by saying there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. Especially for the Christian and Messianic leadership that may be hearing my words. Please notice Paul's not talking to the congregation. He's specifically addressing this comment to the leadership. It's not to say that the same thing doesn't go for the membership. But the example of this principle is first to be demonstrated by the leadership. But once Paul's finished saying all he wanted to say, he kneels with the elders and he prays. And he bids them a sorrowful, tearful farewell as they took to heart 
his belief that they'd never see him again. Now, interestingly, despite his coming ordeal in Jerusalem, Paul was mistaken. This would not be the last time the leaders of Ephesus would see Paul. Well, let's move on to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1390. 1390. Acts chapter 21. Let's read it together. After we had torn ourselves away from the Ephesian elders, we set sail and we made a straight run to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And on finding a ship that was crossing over to Phoenicia, we embarked and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Zor, because there was a, that's, that was where the ship was unloading its cargo. Having searched out the Talmudim, the disciples there, we remained for a week. Now, guided by the Spirit, they told Shaul not to go up to Jerusalem. But when the week was over, we left to continue our journey. All of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the town. And kneeling on the beach and praying, we said goodbye to each other. And then we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Well, when the voyage from Zor was over, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. There we greeted the brothers, and we stayed with them overnight. The following day we left and came to Caesarea, where we went to the home of Philip, the proclaimer of the good news, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters with the gift of prophecy. Now, while we were staying there, a prophet named Agav came down from Judah to visit us. He took Shaul's belt, tied up his own hands and feet, and said, Here is what the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, says. The man who owns his, this belt, the Judeans in Jerusalem will tie him up just like this and hand him over to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, both we and the people there begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, what are you doing, crying, trying to weaken my resolve? I'm prepared to not only be tied up, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Yeshua. And when he would not be convinced, we said, May the Lord's will be done, and kept quiet. So at the end of our stay, we packed up and went to Jerusalem. And with us went some of the Talmudim from Caesarea, and they brought us to the home of the man with whom we were to stay, Menasson from Cyprus and who had been a disciple since the early days in Jerusalem the brothers received us warmly the next day Shaul and the rest of us went to Yaakov, James and all the elders were present and after greeting them Shaul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts well on hearing it they praised God but they also said to him you see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans? They're all zealots for the Torah. Now, what they have been told about you is that you are teaching all the Jews living among the Gentiles to apostatize from Moshe, telling them not to have a brit milah, a circumcision, for their sons and not to follow the traditions. Well, then what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them with you. Be purified with them. Pay the expenses connected with having their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is nothing to these rumors which they've heard about you. 
but that on the contrary, you yourself stay in line and keep the Torah. However, in regard to the Gentiles who have come to trust in Yeshua, we all joined in writing them a letter with our decision that they should abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. Well, the next day Paul took the men, purified himself along with them, and entered the temple to give notice of when the period of purification would be finished, and the offering would have to be made for each of them. The seven days were almost up when some unbelieving Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple. And they stirred up all the crowd and they grabbed him. Men of Israel, help! they shouted. This is the man who goes everywhere teaching everyone things against the people, against the Torah, against this place. Now he's even brought some Gentiles into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, from Ephesus in the city with him and assumed that Shaul had brought him into the temple. Well, the whole city was aroused. People came running from all over. They seized Shaul. They dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. But while they were attempting to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman battalion that all Jerusalem was in turmoil and immediately he took officers and soldiers and he charged down upon them. And as soon as they saw the commander, they quit beating Paul. Well, then the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. He asked who he was, what he'd done. Everyone in the crowd shouted something different so he couldn't find out what had happened because of the uproar. So he ordered him brought to the barracks. And when Shaul got to the steps, he actually had to be carried by the soldiers because the mob was so wild. The crowd kept following and shouting, Scream, uh, kill him, kill him! And Shaul was about to be brought into the barracks. He said to the commander, Is it all right if I say something to you? The commander said, You know Greek? Say, aren't you that Egyptian who tried to start a revolution a while back and led 4,000 armed terrorists out into the desert? And Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, and I ask your permission to let me speak to the people. Having received permission, Shaul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When finally they became still, he addressed them in Hebrew. <clears throat> now this is one of these chapters that I think I'm going to enjoy more than you do. <laughs> because it has some fascinating theological implications as well as ample opportunity for, for me to discuss a little more about the historical Paul. Now by doing so, it opens a window for us to straighten out a few misconceptions that have become reflected in some, some rather widespread Christian doctrines. Well, the final words of the previous chapter explain that this melancholy group went with Paul to the port and at least some of them accompanied him on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The first few words of Acts 21 tell us where the ship made its first port call. It was at Kos. Paul and his companions overnighted in Kos, and the next day they sailed on to Rhodes, and then from there to Patara. Now, what we see here is the customary island hopping that occurred among most transport ships in this era. These were the smaller vessels. That, that delivered goods up and down the coastlands, not venturing very far out to sea. They were like local delivery trucks 
they tended to operate in good weather, mostly during daylight hours. Well, Paul would eventually need to hook up with a larger, more seaworthy vessel to sail across the open waters of the Mediterranean to reach a port in the Holy Land. Well, Kos was a small island that one passed on the route to Rhodes. It was best known for the medical school found by Hippocrates 500 years before Paul's day. The, uh, the Rhodes that's being spoken of here is no doubt the city of Rhodes located on the island of Rhodes because that city had a, uh, had a busy port. Now Rhodes was a much larger island than Kos. Interestingly, Greek and Roman historical records indicate that both of these islands had Jewish populations living on them. I mean, I tell you this to point out just how widespread the Jews were. There was hardly a place in all the known world where you wouldn't find at least a few Jewish families. Well, Pataro now was back on the mainland, it was not an island was back on the mainland of Asia, due east from the island of Rhodes in the territory of Lycia. So it was just a short sail. It will be in Patara where, where Paul leaves the small boat he's been on to find a large one now to take him back to the Holy Land. Now this would be a journey of five days at sea. Let me remind you, there were no such things as passenger ships in these days. Passengers were simply live cargo. And notice how much detail we're getting about this journey. This is because we are once again in the we passages of the book of Acts. That is, the writer, Luke, was once again including himself in everything that's being reported because he was present. So whenever Luke was with Paul, we find this amount of detail increases since he's reporting things firsthand and Paul seems rather Luke seems to like detail so Paul found an appropriate ship and they set sail from Patara and the route they took what took them around the, the western and southern coasts of Cyprus and then they landed in Zor of Phoenicia Zor by the way is another name for Tyre now they stayed there for a week meeting up with some believers who lived there. Now these believers of Tyre or Zor joined the chorus advising Paul not to go to Jerusalem because the spirit pretended something bad happening to him there. Paul was unmoved. He was determined to go to Jerusalem no matter the danger. But this brings up an interesting theological conundrum that invariably winds up being a practical challenge for believers at some time or another. In Acts 20, verse 22, we're told that Paul was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 21, 4, the disciples at Tyre, also guided by the Spirit, we're told, tell Paul he should not go. Oh my, what do we do now? God cannot be divided. So what's happening here? Why did Paul go anyway? Or did these disciples not really hear from the Spirit? It seems that these disciples of Tyre 
are getting the same warning from the Holy Spirit that the disciples of uh, from Asia had received. It is that their leader Paul was going to have something serious happen to him in Jerusalem. What would anybody's action reaction be if they knew about this danger ahead of time? It would be to urge the affected party not to go. But on the other hand, Paul says the Holy Spirit is compelling him to go. Paul sensed danger ahead, even death, because he told the Ephesian elders that he would never see them again. But you see, that's a separate issue from whether he should go to Jerusalem or not. Now remember, it was God's law that every Jew was to go to the temple in Jerusalem for Shavuot. Essentially, Paul was resigned to the fact that he would be walking into danger. But he thought God still wanted him to do it. The Spirit didn't order Paul to stay away from Jerusalem. Rather, it was Paul's followers who asked him not to go because what they feared was awaiting him. Better to break a commandment of God, they reasoned, than to do something risky. And there you have it. As uncomfortable as it may be to deal with. It is that believers, we are to accept risks. There are risks that we are supposed to take when we know that God is urging us. But in the risk-averse West, it seems counterintuitive to do anything that would involve risk or danger to us. Especially if we know about it or, or have deep suspicions about it in advance. So would God actually ask us to do something that He knows and we suspect is seriously risky? Possibly even fatal? Give you for instance. My wife and I have ventured to Israel more times than I can remember. And we continued going to Israel during the violent intifada of 15 or so years ago, when buses and pizza parlors were being randomly blown up by terrorists. Shops were closing by the scores. Restaurants were going out of business. Entire hotels, massive hotels, were just shut down and mothballed. Our family, most of our friends, thought us crazy. They pled with us not to go to Israel. And it's not that we were naive of the increased risk or we didn't feel some anxiety about it, because we did. It's that we knew in our spirits that we were supposed to do this. Problem is, God didn't tell us why. And that really makes it hard. Now looking back, I cannot begin to tell you how much things have changed for the better between Christians and Jews in Israel as the result of many thousands of Christians just like us who kept going to Israel during those dangerous times.
Israeli shopkeepers would ask us bluntly why we'd still come in the midst of all this danger. And then we told them why and some wanted to know more about our faith. Jews on the street would come up to us, shake our hands and with moist eyes thank us. We tell them how much we value them and how much God loves them. We even had Orthodox Jews who in years past would literally change sides of the street to avoid us. For real. But now they pause and smile and nod their heads in acknowledgement of us. Christian and Jewish relations in Israel are very different and so much better today than they were 20 years ago. A genuine warmth and a sense of friendship has replaced a, a, a rather cold, unwelcoming and suspicious attitude. So now in hindsight I understand why God had us along with many thousands more believers going to Israel to face real danger despite what in many ways seemed to any reasonable person to be utterly foolhardy. I also know of missionaries that regularly go to dangerous places with spiritually grounded friends and family saying that hey they have flashing red lights going off in their spirits that something's gonna happen and so they need to not go or they need to go someplace else. See, this is where discernment comes into play. Sometimes when we know there is great risk in what we're about to enter into, we need to decide whether God is directing us in that risk so that He can use, use it to His glory or whether we are foolishly playing with our lives and what we're doing is naive idealism. It's not God's direction at all. I don't have any sure way for you to divine the right answer to that. I only know that God's grand plan for His believers is not to remove all chance of danger or risk for us. Rather, I think many times He is asking us to go or to do when the circumstances are just screaming for us to, to run the other directions. And he's doing it as a test. It's a test to see what matters more to us, our lives or his will. It may not even always involve danger to life and limb. You know what? It might be financial risk. It might be career risk social risk. Paul was right to continue on to Jerusalem where indeed bad things were going to happen because the Lord had bigger plans for Paul than he had any idea of. So Shaul said goodbye to these worried believers of Zor and he and Luke and apparently some who came with him from Asia likely with those collection of funds for Jerusalem went to Ptolemaeus. Now Ptolemaeus is known in modern times as Akko. And there were believers there 
who greeted them and offered hospitality for the night. Now notice how everywhere that Paul went, there were believers. Or he made some new ones. That is how fast and how wide belief in Yeshua had grown in the perhaps 25 years since Christ was executed. The next day they continued on their journey towards Jerusalem and they came to Caesarea Maritima, the jewel of port cities in the Holy Land. Now interestingly, Philip lived there and he greeted the travelers. See, this was the same Philip from back in Acts chapter 6 who was part of a group of Hellenist Jewish believers who didn't think that their widows were getting their fair share of charity. You remember that story? So the leadership of the way in Jerusalem chose seven of these Hellenists to be in charge of the distribution to all the widows, Hellenists or Hebrews. This is why verse 8 refers to Philip as one of the seven. Well, it's clear that Paul, or at least one of his party, knew that Philip lived in Caesarea, so they went straight away to his house, and with Philip lived four of his unmarried daughters. Now, interestingly, all four are said to be prophetesses. I want to go off track for just a moment to explain an interesting Jewish viewpoint about what's happening here. Unmarried daughters is another way of saying virgins. This didn't necessarily mean that they were terribly young, even children. Typical marrying age in this era was around 15. It wasn't unusual for a girl to be married as early as 12. But no one was going to trust a prophecy coming from a child. So these four daughters were likely in their mid or late teens, maybe into their 20s. However, Jewish documents from that era suggest that celibacy, man or woman, had some connection to the ability to prophesy. Because the ability to prophesy also had some connection to the level of ritual purity of a person. The idea being that the most ritually pure a woman would ever be in her lifetime was before she shared intimacy with the opposite sex. And this is because the act itself automatically initiates a short time of ritual uncleanness. These same documents also point out how unmarried girls still living under their father's roof were segregated from males so that contact with men was very limited, tightly supervised by the father. This was done for the sake of purity and modesty. All of this in the Hebrew culture was seen as the epitome of piety. Thus such girls were all the more likely to be rewarded by the Lord with the ability to prophesy. Now I'm not saying that this is necessarily how the Lord views it. I'm saying this is how Jewish society in Paul's era viewed it. And it is without doubt why it's even mentioned here in Acts 21. 
Because nothing implies that any of these four girls actually prophesied something to Paul and company. But then in verse 10, with the idea of prophets and prophecy still the theme, we read of an adult male prophet named Agav who came to visit. It's an odd situation because we're given no clue as to whether it was a coincidence that he and Paul arrived at about the same time in Caesarea or whether this was an intentionally timed thing to occur this way. What was Agav's relationship with Philip, Paul, Luke, any of the believers? We don't know. Was he a believer? Nothing indicates it. However, this isn't the first time we've run into Agav. Back in Acts chapter 11, we read of him coming to Antioch from Jerusalem and prophesying a famine in the Roman Empire. It happened. So the tie-in between him and the believers is, is kind of ambiguous. That said, it's clear that he is a true prophet of God. And what he says is to be trusted. Agav put on a visual illustration of what Paul can expect in Jerusalem. So he borrowed Paul's belt, which is also called a girdle. He tied up his own hands and his feet and he said that the owner of that belt, Paul, would have this happen to him in Jerusalem. And he would be handed over to the Gentiles, meaning he'd be arrested by the Roman authorities. And once again, Paul is informed, although in more detail, of the danger that awaits him. But still, there's no commandment of God to avoid Jerusalem. So, Paul's order from God to go to Jerusalem stands. Now, since everyone was present, when Agav gave his prophecy, Luke and the group of elders that had come with Paul from Asia and the local believers in Caesarea once again begged Shaul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul told him, Stop crying! and stop urging him not to do what he clearly knew God wanted him to do. He says that arrest, injury, or death are beside the point. Whatever happens, happens. And since God has not told him through a prophet to avoid going to Jerusalem, then what Paul needs from them is strengthening. He needs encouragement, not excuses that supposedly allow him to disobey the Lord. They kept it up though. Finally, they saw that Paul was not going to be swayed. And they concluded God's will be done. In other words, they finally came around to the understanding that Paul had had all along. You know, <laughs> it sounds... So nice and loving to tell a brother or sister in Christ to avoid a risk that they believe God wants them to take. Or to tell them that whatever is the desire of their heart, God wants it too. Or he wouldn't have put that desire in them. But the truth is that good intentions and properly discerning God's will don't always coincide. All these disciples knew is what God had shown them in so many ways. Paul was going to face serious trouble when he got to Jerusalem. They also now knew from Agav's prophecy that Paul was going to be arrested by the Romans. So I don't see them as wrong-minded. 
they weren't demonstrating a lack of faith by trying to discourage Paul from going to Jerusalem. However, it does tell us that only rarely does God show us everything from beginning to end. The only additional information that Paul had that the disciples didn't was that he was certain in his spirit that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. The disciples reasoned with Paul, no doubt saying he could lose his life if he went. But they had enough respect for Paul to come to the conclusion that in the end, this was between Paul and God. So they reluctantly threw in the towel and they wished him well. Now understand, Paul was not traveling alone. So he would not be going up to Jerusalem by himself. Paul's traveling companions would be with him. And whatever fate was going to befall Paul, that could easily ensnare Luke and the elders from Asia, kind of guilt by association. So we shouldn't overlook the faith and trust they were displaying as well. They knew they too could be at risk. But despite all this, Paul's entourage actually grew as some of the disciples of Caesarea decided to join them as they went up to Jerusalem. Now again, let's remember, this was not entirely about loyalty to Paul. Shavuot was upon them. And these men were required by the Torah to go to the temple in Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship. So off to Jerusalem they went. Immediately they stopped at the home at Manasson, a believer from Cyprus, who would provide them with a place to stay, meaning he had a sizable house. Now it's clear that these accommodations had been prearranged, and for a good reason. Jerusalem would swell to three or four times its normal size during Shavuot. Finding somewhere to stay could be quite difficult. But the residents of Jerusalem saw it as a duty and a privilege to find a way to accommodate all who came to God's festivals. Even though Shavuot was technically a one-day feast, pilgrims coming from long distances, of course, didn't come for one day and then turn around and head home. Besides, Halakha had by now put many demands upon those who came to celebrate. And ritual purity was at the heart of those demands because impurity was contagious. Now it was a given that all those coming from the diaspora would have to come early so they could go through the purification rituals. Even for the Jewish believers who accepted Peter's teaching that Gentiles were not inherently unclean, there was the reality that most Gentiles were pagans. And so their idolatry and their non-kosher eating created a great deal of uncleanness. This is why the Jerusalem Council several years earlier had declared certain prohibitions regarding these two issues for Gentile believers. Then there was the Gentiles' careless handling of the dead, for which they went through no purification procedures. So this produced the worst sort of defilement, and so on and so on. 
the Jews who lived in the diaspora were by definition in close contact with these Gentiles so it was assumed that all Jewish pilgrims coming to Jerusalem from the diaspora were unclean and they would need time to perform the purification rituals before they could enter the temple to present their first fruits. Well, verse 17 says that the brothers, meaning the Jewish believers of Jerusalem, warmly welcomed Paul and his group. The next day, Paul and the entire group of his traveling companions go to see Yaakov, that's Yeshua's half-brother, who's the supreme head of the way. Yaakov is called James in our English Bibles. Now, I've already covered it, but it bears repeating. This Christian tradition of calling him James happened with the creation of the King James Bible. The editors of the Bible changed Jacob's name to James in order to honor King James, and it's stuck ever since. There is no James in Hebrew. Now I'm going to lapse into using the name James just for the sake of familiarity and continuity, okay? Shaul spent some time explaining to James the great successes he had had among the Gentiles with the Gospel. This was not bragging. Paul had always recognized James' authority, so he was merely presenting him with a progress report. Now this is a good time to remind you that while indeed Yaakov, James, was indeed the head of the Messianic movement, the way, that did not represent every strand in existence of those who believed in Yeshua as Messiah. It appears to have been the majority. And further, there's no evidence that James ventured outside of the Holy Land. Rather, he operated out of Jerusalem. So, he was dealing almost exclusively with Jews of the most zealous variety. Judean Jews. So with that piece of information about James, verse 20 opens with some important words for us to take in. It says, On hearing it, they praised God. That is, James and the leadership of the way were very glad and uplifted with Paul's report. There is a line of doctrine that began in early Christianity that says that James and the Jerusalem Council didn't care about Gentiles or even too much about the Jews in the diaspora. These opening words of verse 20 then are either insincere insincere or they show us that indeed the leadership was thrilled about what was happening. In return they were quick to want to show Paul what had been going on in Jerusalem. Well the scriptural record implies that it's been a long time since Paul has been in Jerusalem. Anywhere from 15 to perhaps as much as 20 years And since that time, much development of the believing community in the Holy Land has occurred. James tells Paul, says, look at how many tens of thousands of believers there are, and they're all zealous for the Torah. First, in Greek, James says to look at how many myriads of believers there are. In Greek, the word myriad technically means the precise number 10,000. 
However, there is some evidence that the word was also used to represent just a very big number. Even so, the plain wording says how many myriads. So it would seem to be saying how many ten thousands. Even more, James calls these specific believers Judeans. Now it's not unknown for the words Jews and Judeans to be synonymous, but almost always the term Judeans means what it says. It is referring to the Jewish residents of the province of Judea. And since the scene is taking place in Jerusalem of Judea, and since Paul's report was specifically about Jews and Gentiles from the diaspora, then it would seem we must take James' word that these tens of thousands of Jews he's referring to are only Jews from Judea, of the Holy Land. But now comes the part that has bedeviled the church for 19 centuries. James says that all of these believing Jews parading around the streets of Jerusalem for Shavuot are zealous for the Torah. That's what it says in the complete Jewish Bible. In Greek, it says zealous for the nomos. Nomos. Usually translated into English as the law. What does this mean? What are the ramifications of believing Jews who even 15 to 20 years after the rulings of the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15 are continuing to be zealous for the law. How can that be? I mean, according to most of the early church fathers, according to most of the church denominations to this day, James abolished the law. If so, then why is James now so proud to announce to Paul that all these tens of thousands of believers here in Jerusalem continue to follow the law scrupulously? This is a big question, and it's an important question. And that's what we're going to delve into in depth next time.